Would you turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. We will finish 2 Peter by next week. We'll go into James the following week. But I think verses 17 and 18 would be excellent verses for the theme of next week. And uh, I wanted to treat verses 14 through 16 as a unit um, and uh, to to dwell in these verses this morning. So this is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Verses 14 through 16, 2 Peter chapter 3. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of scriptures, to their own destruction. Let's pray. O Lord God, we ask that you would add your... uh, your blessing to the reading and preaching of your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It, the boys and I, two boys and I, this uh, this morning opened up the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, and there, are, there we are reviewing what the Westminster Confession of Faith says concerning uh, the doctrine of Scripture. And we saw a big word today. I'll let the boys share that word with their parents when they go home and what that word means. I'll tell you ahead of time, it's perspicuity, Um, and it's a good word. It means that Scripture is clear. Uh, Things which God has revealed to man intended for us are clear, at least in some place of Scripture, uh, though not plain in all, uh, nonetheless. But in that section, in section 4, I believe, it said this about Scripture. The authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed and obeyed depends not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore it is to be received because it is the word of God. Now, I've heard in the last few weeks various people, whether on uh, social media or various things that have been shared with me, or frankly, when we were out in Longmeadow Days standing uh, before other uh, individuals who'd come and visit our booth, um, they question the veracity, the truthfulness, the perspicuity, uh, the inerrancy, and especially the infallibility of Scripture. Uh, the infallibility of Scripture simply refers to the trustworthiness of the Word of God. Do we believe the Bible? Is the Bible believable? Should the Bible be believed? Should we take Bible at uh, the Bible at, at, at face value, which is that it is the Word of God? Should we believe that every portion of Scripture is the Word of God? Should we say, as we open Scripture, that the Word of God is inspired? In other words, God breathed. Of course, there are many passages in Scripture that speak about uh, Scripture itself. So, such that if, if someone affirms, well, yes, I believe the Bible, but I don't, I don't really think that we should take it literally, and or I believe the Bible, but 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 I really take the sayings of Christ as the word of God, not the rest of it. 
or as I've heard recently, even from a family member. I, I, I believe what the Bible says about Jesus. However, the traditions related there and the things that, that the Bible speaks of, I believe are antiquated. Traditional things, not necessarily all of it being the word of God. Well, what should our attitude be concerning Scripture? And, and Peter helps us with that this morning. To set this passage within context, we have heard the words in, in verses 12 and 13 and 14. We've heard the word waiting. We've heard the word waiting. Waiting holds a significant it holds significance in this passage, um, and it depends upon your translation of Scripture. But in verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Looking for and hastening. Looking for is uh, can be taken either way, either looking for with patience or waiting for. Uh, But according in verse 13 to his promise, we are looking for, that's that word again, looking for or waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, in verse 14, since you look for these things, again, the same word, which means looking for or waiting with expectation. Peter is writing to a people who are waiting. They are looking for something. They are looking for the signs of Christ returning. They are looking for the day of judgment when Christ will come and all men and women, boys and girls, will ascend into his presence and give an account for their soul. Looking for and hastening the coming day of God. Looking for a day when the heavens will melt with intense heat and the earth will be remade and the cosmos will be remade and Christ will be displayed as the matchless the matchless Lamb of God before all eternity, such that all men, women, and children will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We are waiting for such a day, are we not, as Christians? We are anticipating that day. We are looking for that day, the new heavens and the new earth descending from heaven and settling upon the new earth, created, remade, reformed. We are anticipating such days. We are prioritizing those days. We are prioritizing the day when Christ will come again. It is our earnest hope. And I think it's something that especially as Christians grow older, especially as Christians become more mature and more fully understanding of the world and and of the word of God, we anticipate more and more the return of Jesus Christ such that we proclaim Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And that is our earnest heart's cry that the day will will come and we will see the heavens melt. The cosmos changed in the blink of an eye, the voice of an archangel and Christ come in glory. Our Savior in the clouds with all those who have died, who have predeceased ourselves and will come with Christ raised and all bodies raised from the ground, united with our souls. Ascending in glory in the Lord, sharing in his glory, rejoicing in him, praising and glorifying God in the day of our salvation. We anticipate, we live in anticipation of such a day. And so how should we live as we anticipate that day? How should we live since we are 
waiting for these things. How should we as aliens, Peter has identified the people to whom he is writing, Christians in Cappadocia, Bithynia, uh, and and other surrounding areas in south and southwestern uh, modern-day Turkey. They are are aliens. They are, are, as it were, uh, um, uh, far off from the center of the church. They They are out in a pagan society, uh, and they may feel themselves to be alienated at times, exiled, as it were. And Peter writes to them, elect exiles, he says, aliens, uh, those who are different than the world and know themselves to be, feeling distant from or cut off from the center of the church itself in Jerusalem and Antioch. And Peter says, look, I'm writing to you because you are to maintain hope in these things. You are to maintain hope in the return of Jesus Christ, hope in the return of Christ, and and thus to avoid the errors of of men without principle. Uh, First two chapters have identified those individuals. They are waterless springs. They are people that have been set aside for God's judgment because they have come into the church there in south and southwest Turkey And they have said, look, the ascension of Christ has occurred and the return of Christ has already happened. Christ has already come in full fulfillment of his promise to come again. And so they have been left in a quandary. They have been left perhaps hopeless. Uh, and, and, And the Christian life is marked by an anticipation of the return of Jesus Christ. It's marked by the expectation and hope that one day we will stand in resplendent glory with Jesus, seeing our Savior face to face. It's what Job hoped in. One day I will see my Redeemer face to face. It's what all of us anticipate. It's what every believer anticipates. And so there are things to prioritize as we anticipate that, as we avoid the false testimony and the and the misteaching, the miscommunication, and the false testimonies of those who have come in and sought to do harm in the church. There's something to prioritize. There are commands to be obeyed while we wait, and there are warnings for us to hear. And so there's, there's four things. I've, 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 I had to fit one of them, contort just a little bit to get them all to start with a P, so that we will all remember. It's a wonderful way to be able to remember if... if if all the words that I use this morning in the outline start with a letter that we are familiar with and that we can go and hopefully remember as we leave. But there are four, four Ps, the first of which is purity. It's very simply stated in verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? And he takes up the same theme again in our text this morning in verse 14. Be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Now, spotless and blameless have interesting implications. Uh, Back in chapter 1, Peter referred to Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, the one without blemish. And Peter is affirming here the necessity of believers to be like Christ. One of the great privileges of Christians uh, is that we... We have been given a participation in Christ such that we may we may more and more be conformed to the image of our God 
and take on the identity of Christ and become more Christ-like day by day as we take in the word, worship God, study the word, fellowship together, walk in union in Christ Jesus, abstaining from sin and seeking holiness. So very simply stated in verse 14 and affirmed in verse 11, as you anticipate the return of Jesus Christ, as you anticipate that you will not forever be on this earth, do more holy things. Do more holy, godly things. Do more God-oriented things. That's it, simply stated. Do godly things. Do holy things. And all the ordinary things you do purposefully and, and diligently, add holiness to them. Peter uses the word diligence. Be diligent to be found. Be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. We are to daily, diligently, each and every moment, make certain that what we do is in some way pleasing to God, informed by the word of God, uh, whose intention is to ultimately glorify God. In all the things you do, do them purposefully and diligently and add holiness to them. Do them in scriptural purity. Uh, Diligently stay away from and do not do the things which God's word implores us not to do. Things which are impure or blemished or that cause strife and division. In what you prioritize, in what you you're pursuing and the goals that you have in life and how you treat your spouse. You should treat them with dignity and self-sacrificing love, with abstinence from anything that harms intimacy and love. Be kind and gentle and self-controlled. How you interact with your children, what you watch on television, what you read, how you play and recreate, how you spend your money how we honor our mothers and fathers, how we work, how we tithe and give, our patterns of worship attendance and church community participation, all of them, yes, we should pursue holiness. It's the cry of Hebrews, pursue holiness without which none will see the Lord. Thanks be to God that we are made holy in Christ Jesus. Thanks be to God that we are continually more and more holiness has worked in our lives through the Holy Spirit. But we are to be diligent day by day, diligently walking in holiness. Diligence is found in the small things, is it not? The the great life patterns, the great directions of one's lives, they're found in small ways in which we obey the Lord. small decisions that we ought or ought not to do, this is because God is honored and pleased in the things which we do that are pleasing to him. And God is dishonored and displeased with the things which he has prohibited. Be diligent to be found by him. That's what Peter is telling us as we consider, well, how am I supposed to live a Christian life? Uh, what, what, what am I to, part, to take up and consider my, my calling in the Christian life? Some of us think, well, what I really need to be doing, and I feel guilty about it, is I really need to be dedicating the entirety of my life to going to some foreign land in the Christian service and ministry. Well, maybe not. Not all are called to that. But every Christian is called to diligence in seeking holiness 
and Christ-likeness in our conduct and glorifying God in the Christian life. Every Christian is called to this. Be diligent to be found by him. It's interesting what he says here. Be diligent to be found in the church, to be found by your fellow Christians, to be at peace and spotless and without blemish. No, he doesn't say that. Be diligent to be found by him. He who sees all things, he from whom nothing is hidden. He who is there in the quiet moments and he who is there in, even in our thoughts. He who weighs the thoughts of our minds and our heart, the priorities of our inner desires. He who knows the inner thoughts of every man and woman and child. God who is omniscient and who knows all things. Be diligent to be found by him. To be found by him. God eternal, God infinite, God all-knowledgeable, God omniscient, omnipotent, God eternal and powerful and glorious in his being, perfect in his countenance, holy in all that he does, be diligent to be found by him. So we are to make, we are to make every effort. And we are to make every effort not so that everyone around us will think, oh, this person is such a holy holy person it's a good thing it, it, it certainly is called for in scripture that we would present for one another an example of christ likeness that we would be a godly example to each other that we are in shared community together and we are to be careful about our conduct amongst god's people in the household of god yes but as it, as as we anticipate commendation approbation We are to anticipate that God will see, that God knows the truth, and we are to make every effort for him. Not necessarily to be noticed in the church, but rather that we would please and honor and bless our God. We we are to make every effort. The Christian life is not an effortless one. It takes effort to be in the house of the Lord on the Lord's day. And we are to be diligent in that effort to be here. That we might have imparted to us something of the word of God. That we might be pricked in our conscience in service to him. That we might be encouraged and uplifted in our thinking such that we can live in this world encouraged in Christ and pursuing him, loving him with all our heart and soul and mind. And that we can savor Christ and enjoy him. We are to make every effort. The Christian life is not an effortless one. A true Christian is not one who doesn't know the effort it takes to abstain from sin, to pursue righteousness, to pursue with diligence, holiness, godliness. Paul writes about this in Philippians, not that I've already obtained it or I've already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. So he acknowledges that God has laid hold of him, that his, his life is not his own. He has been bought with a price. But he also affirms at the same time the necessity of human effort to lay hold of Christ who has laid hold of us. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, I forget what lies behind and I reach forward to what lies ahead. 
You see his diligence? I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Without spot or blemish. This is what we are to pursue. There are Old Testament shadows here of the Old Testament sacrificial Passover lamb. Uh, there are Old Testament shadows of, and, and Peter understands that. That's what he has affirmed in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 19. In the conduct, in the context where he is affirming, be holy in all your conduct. In, in both of his letters, Peter has affirmed the necessity of living a holy life in a, in a, in a non-Christian world. Be holy in all your conduct, he says. And then he says, be, be motivated by uh, the very spotless Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the call of this passage this morning is to all of us. Live a life like Christ Jesus. Live your life like Christ Jesus. Live like Christ. Pursue him. Look at him in all of his glorious purity. He is the Lamb of God without spot or blemish. He is purity defined. The righteousness of God is in full display in the life and perfection and the cross of Jesus Christ. Pursue Jesus. Pursue and ask the Lord to make you more like Jesus. Make me like Christ my Savior. Let let Christ in his purity, let his righteousness wash over me, cleansing me of my sin and enabling me more and more to walk in a manner worthy of the name of Jesus Christ. You know, heaven, heaven is where people who have loved righteousness go. If you hate righteousness, if you dislike the way in which the Bible speaks of purity and holiness and living in such a way that is pleasing to God, if you hate that, well, heaven is really not for you, is it? Heaven is for people who love purity, who love the purity of Jesus Christ, who love righteousness. No one who hates God's ways will be in heaven. But all who love God's way, however imperfectly we may keep them, in absolute need of the Holy Spirit to enable us day by day to obey, knowing that we always fall short, nevertheless, God is at work in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. And and there is comfort for the believer. God will make you holy. God will make you holy. Christ has died to, to, in order to bring you to a position where in him there is no blemish. There is no spot or wrinkle. Because Christ is our righteousness. We have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Mark Johnson, in his commentary on 2 Peter, says this, The problem with many people as they say, on the one hand, when we die, we want to go to heaven. But when asked if they really want God and his righteousness in their lives here on earth, they give an altogether different response. The same can be strangely true for Christians. We say we're looking forward to spending eternity with God in heaven, but we find it hard to endure one hour a week in his presence on earth. How will those who cannot endure a Lord's day with God enjoy eternity 
with Jesus Christ hereafter. The second thing that we see in this passage, and this will be a quicker point, is peace. We've seen purity, but now we see peace. He says, be diligent to be found. Since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Peace with one another. Not letting the inconsequential upset our relationships. Not easily being offended by conduct that either one of us might display towards one another, even when we do offend. And every human being does offend every human being. Frankly, the people who who are most offended are the people who often most offend. At least I find that to be a general principle. And I count myself amongst them. I know that there are words, there are ways that I can look at someone or things that I might neglect to do that might be offensive or might cause an offense. But the word of God commands us to not be offended, to not take offense, but rather to forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. So we should be at peace with one another. Not letting the inconsequential upset our relationships, striving for peace. It says in another place in Scripture, living peacefully with one another in another place, and yet another place, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. We should work not to be quarrelsome, contumacious or contentious. We should be affable, easy to speak with, not easily offended, assuming the best of one another, not taking offense at minor things, not hiding our irritation over something someone said or something someone did, but rather not being willing to be offended, knowing that if I am offended, I'm, I'm contributing to the, to, the, to the strife in the church itself. No, I'm not contributing to its peace. It amazes me how easily we are offended as Christians. And how often we don't share how we've been offended with one another, but we have an obligation, according to Matthew 18 and multiple other passages, to go to one another, seeking and suing for peace. So desiring out of love for that other person, so desirous of being in a position of peace with my brother or sister in the Lord, that I won't let something come between us, but rather I'll go to that individual and say, look, I'm finding Something you've said or did that that did offend me, I want to understand it, but I've assumed the best of you. And not putting the position, putting the person in a position where we say, now explain what you've done. Well, that's a tough position to put someone in. I'd rather go to someone and say, look, you said this, and I assume this is what you meant. And, you know, this could be offensive, but I've chosen not to be offended by it because I love you. And I, I know you didn't mean this. Go in a gracious way. Go in a merciful way. Go with love. But oh, how people are offended. They leave. They, they'll have nothing to do with you. Well, they won't accept your phone call anymore because, what, you said something out of turn? You said something, you really didn't think about the import of what you said. Maybe it was an insensitive word, sure. But peace ought to be our priority. We ought to desire peace. We need to work for peace. Strive is the language of Scripture for peace. We are to work not to be quarrelsome. The peace of Christ is to rule in our hearts. We should let small issues go. We should work against disagreement. We should seek peace with one another. 
But I think Peter has not only peace within the community of God's people, but also peace with God in mind here. Peace with God. And peace with God, reconciliation through the cross of Jesus Christ is what's in view. Through the pure Lamb of God, unblemished and without spot. If you're at peace with God this morning, not on your own terms, but on his. Some people assume, make an assumption, I'm at peace with God. On the basis of what? And they'll explain something, but they won't say anything about, well, Christ has reconciled me through his death on the cross. Well, that's the only answer. I have peace with God. On the basis of what? Well, I've I've always sought to do what is pleasing to him. Well, that won't do it. I've always given. I've lived a charitable life. I grew up in the church and so did my father and my father's father. I've raised my children carefully. I've always followed a biblical ethic. None of it will save you. None of it will give you peace with God. I have a title. I have someone who said something wonderful about me. Well, wonderful. That's great. But none of that is contained within Scripture. It's the only way by which we may make peace with God. We do not make peace with God on our own terms. We make peace with God based upon his terms, through faith in his Son. And all that that means accepting that I am a sinner, that I've sinned against a holy God, and I cannot supererogate my works. I cannot make up for what I have done and the offenses that I have wrought against him. I have neglected to do the things which he has commanded, and I have done things in contradiction to what he has prohibited. I have sinned against him in word and in deed, and I have sinned against him in my thoughts. Not only that, But Adam represented me in the Garden of Eden, and he sinned. And when he sinned, I was condemned in that sin too. But in Christ Jesus, the second Adam, the Savior, the the Lamb of God without blemish or spot, my sins have been forgiven, they have been nailed to the tree, and the guilt of them, I know it no more. I am redeemed, I am redeemed, I am redeemed. I have been reconciled to the living God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Such that my sins, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross and I know it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. Dear friend, come and make peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ today. Why be alienated from him? Why endure his wrath? Why put the Lord to the test and anger him by your refusal to come to him on his terms and be reconciled to him through the spotless Lamb of God? Why continue to attempt a righteousness of your own, which is only sullied and filthy and has filthy rags, according to the pages of Scripture, when you can be reconciled to him through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You can only have peace through Christ, and you'll have no peace without him. Our motivation for this is drawn from verse 12. The wrath of God is coming in judgment. The the world will one day come to an end. You may not see it in your lifetime, but your soul will ascend to God when you die. One way or the other, you'll be there at the last day of judgment. Your body reunited with your soul. 
And either you will enter into the bliss of the Savior in whom you trusted in this world and believed in him unto everlasting salvation and the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, or you'll rest on your own merits and be condemned to the everlasting wrath of God. Peace on his terms. Be found by him at peace through the wrath-satisfying cross of Jesus Christ. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me pure and give me peace within? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Thirdly, we've seen purity and peace, now patience. In Romans chapter 3, 2, verse 4, it says, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Now, some have come into the church in south and southwestern Turkey, and they said, the Lord has already returned. And they said, there's nothing more that, that, that can motivate us to live the Christian life because God has already come. Christ has already come. But Peter affirms to the church, no, he has not yet returned. And you may say, well, I've never heard such a, an argument that the Lord has already come, that the second coming of Christ has already occurred. Well, it was only a year or two ago when there was an individual in the church who affirmed that, spoke publicly of it. It is still very much believed, erroneously, foolishly. Well, we live as people who anticipate the return of Christ. The, the, the return of Christ is our great anticipation in the Christian life. It's the great motivating factor in daily godliness and the pursuit of holiness. It, it motivates us to diligence. Christ is coming again. The Lord is returning. The Lord will come. Shout of acclamation and the voice of an archangel and the heavens will melt. And the world and the cosmos will be remade and reformed and the new heavens and the new earth will descend. The, the city of God will descend from heaven. Well, the truth of the matter is that God is waiting, that, that God is, is not delayed for capricious reasons or foolish reasons. And frankly, in Scripture, he, he reveals to us why the delay of the return of Christ still occurs. And it's not delayed in the sense that we've just stated, but it's delayed for a purpose. Romans 2.4, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Romans 9.22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? In other words, God delays and has chosen a day of the return of Jesus Christ and the day when the new heavens and the new earth will descend and will be remade. And Christ will come and shout of acclamation. The voice of the archangel will be heard by all. And all will ascend to him. That day still waits and it hasn't yet occurred because God is in kindness leading some, leading those who had come to faith in Christ to repentance. God delays for the salvation of the lost. God waits for the salvation of all for whom Christ died. The full panoply of redemption worked out, unfolded, revealed, observed in Christ's cross work, open to the entire cosmos to be reconciled to God through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. 
there is still yet the unfolding of that redemptive plan and purpose. We're not waiting for a future event per se relating to redemption. All things relating to Christ and of salvation have been revealed to us in Christ the Logos, but yet there are still some to be saved. There are still, God is still working out his redemptive purposes in this world. He is still saving to the uttermost. I heard a wonderful testimony from a, a new believer this last week, and it was such a joy to hear. It just tells me God is still at work. He's at work redeeming and saving, and Christ will not come again until all have come in. Some, the greatest news this morning is that the day of judgment has not yet come. The greatest news that you could hear is that the day of judgment has not yet come. Not today. God has reserved. God has been patient with you. He desires your salvation. A day has been granted to you to turn in faith to Jesus Christ. Another day has been granted to you to hear something of the word of God, to believe, to repent, to turn to him. The day of judgment will come. He has been patient with you. He'll continue to be patient with you until he is pleased to bring the full ripening of his purposes and and then for Christ to come. But that day is coming. Only now you must come and be at peace with God. Lastly, we see the fourth point, Paul and the precarious. You see, I had to stretch for the P with that last point, Paul and the precarious. And Peter mentions Paul here, and he mentions the writings of Paul, and he says something about them, that they are a little difficult, some things to understand. He doesn't say all things. Everything Paul says is really hard to understand. He doesn't say that. He says some things that Paul shares or Paul writes, are hard to understand. And he says, just like the other writings, just like the other scriptures, so he's very much aware of the fact that the letters that he is writing, the letters which Paul is writing to Cappadocia, to Galatia, to Bithynia, to Colossae, the letters that they are writing are scripture. They're scripture. This is what he says. As our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, and which are some things hard to understand, which the unthought and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. We hear a lot about misinformation. We have, I think, sometimes well-meaning people and sometimes not so well-meaning people who want to inform social media as to what is truthful. Well, the problem with that is not everyone is truthful. And even the truth-bearing persons or, 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 or commissions don't always tell the truth. Depends on one's perspective. Not all are of the same perspective. Sometimes truth is believed sincerely, and, and it may not necessarily be true. So there are lots of nuances to truth. But when it comes to the Bible, there is only one. God's truth abideth still. There are many worldviews. Even within the Christian camp, there are many different perspectives on, on the Bible and on the return of Jesus Christ. And, and oftentimes there are, there are even some things that are deeply untrue that are based upon a misunderstanding or an ignorance of Scripture and the unstable twist the Scriptures. That's what Peter says. 
And that, that's the path that leads to destruction. But what we have to do is to believe biblical things. When we approach the Bible, the simplest meaning is the best meaning. That if there's something we don't understand, let's examine it by other scriptures and let the word interpret the word. Don't depend on mankind. Don't depend on the Pope. Don't depend upon commissions, councils, or any other such thing. The only infallible rule for the interpretation of scripture is the Holy Spirit of God. Witnessing with the word as we read it. There are expressions of faith in the Bible's content, but protestations that it must be not be taken literally, we've heard that recently, or the creation of a false dichotomy between Jesus' statements of those and those of God in the Old Testament. Many will say, well, I, I follow uh, the, the Bible, Jesus' statements in the New Testament, but I don't believe in the God of the Old Testament. Or somehow God has changed between the Old and the New Testaments. He hasn't. People are justified in the Old Testament but in the same way that people are justified in the New Testament. Read Hebrews 11 if you question that. They're justified by grace through faith. What's the argument from the beginning to the end? There are many passages in Scripture that affirm that the Bible is, in its entirety, the Word of God. And we need to affirm that this morning. We need to hold fast to that. In chapter 1, verse 21, verse 21, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Every word that came out of the men who spoke and who wrote Scripture spoke from God. God spoke through them. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. You see, you can't hold a view that says, well, I believe in the Bible, but certain portions of it should not be believed, should be put aside, are secondary to the other portions that I believe are primary. If, if you draw that, that dichotomy, if you, if you place Scripture against Scripture, then frankly, you're not really reading the entirety of Scripture, and you're speaking in ignorance, because the Scripture sees itself as a whole. And it says unequivocally, all scripture is God breathed. All scripture. Jesus uses a principle. He says every jot and tittle, every smallest, the smallest mark in, in the New Testament Greek, all of it must be fulfilled. The smallest jot and tittle, the smallest mark in the Old Testament Hebrew, it must be fulfilled. Nothing will be left behind. There are uh, there's a word used in Joshua as, as prayer is given to God, Yahweh. Uh, the prayers, the one who is praying simply says there have been no words have fallen. In other words, there's nothing in all of Scripture that fails or falls. God fulfills it all. There's nothing neglected. And Peter's argument about Paul and thus about his own writings, these pastoral letters of Scripture and included in in the graphos, or the writings, the accepted word of God. And so when you come up against something hard in Scripture and difficult to understand, recognize, first of all, it's still the word of God. And it must be believed. And when you come up against something that, frankly, speaks against a certain way in which you're living, 
You cannot, you cannot decide that what you're reading is somehow less than the rest of Scripture. It is to be believed and it is to be trusted and submitted to. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. When we hear the word of God, when we hear the word and read the word, it is God speaking, and it is nothing less. I think a relevant way in which to end this passage this morning is if all these things are true, Peter's asking the question, then what kind of persons ought we to be? If the Bible is true, if Christ is coming again, if the heavens are coming to an end and will melt one day and there will be a new heavens and the new earth and we will all give an account to Jesus Christ, what kind of persons ought we to be? What should our church attendance look like? What should our Bible reading look like? How should we conduct ourselves in the household of the Lord? But also, how should we treat our spouse? How should we treat our children? What manner of holy conduct should I be pursuing? Am I doing the little things, the godly things? In all the things that I do, am I pursuing diligently godliness? May God be pleased to work in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are to be diligent. You encourage, you command that we would obey you and walk in a way that is pleasing to you. However, oh God, we know that we are insufficient for these things, that we are inconsistent, that we fail often. We embrace sin often, but we thank you that there is an advocate with you, Jesus Christ, the righteous, the spotless, without blemish, Lamb of God. And it is him It is him who is our righteousness. It is his righteousness we plead this morning and none other. We give thanks that you are working holiness down deep into the recesses and the soil of our lives. We ask that you would help us to be diligent in making use of all those things pertaining to the godly life that you have given to us, according to 1 Peter 1. Everything necessary to live a godly life in this wicked world has been granted to us in Christ Jesus. And so help us, O Lord, to pursue godliness, to be diligent, to be found by you without spot or blemish. And when we sin, Lord, help us to run afresh to Jesus Christ and find refuge, forgiveness, renewal, restoration. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.